0: What I want you to hear first, and this is most important—you know, this is cool—we're going to baptize Miss Rachel. She's ready to to make public a profession of faith in Christ, and she's embarrassed that I'm talking about her, but she's ready. And I've talked with Patty, and Christy, and Molly, and they've all given evidence. Of Trusting Christ as Lord and Savior and ready to, to just make a, a public statement. And what great testimonies that I heard. I, I'm sorry that you didn't get to go with me. But uh, testimonies of God's grace in the lives of people. And, uh, you know, we just, we just need to remember that God is working. He's working all around us all the time. And those are all really cool things. But here's the thing I want you to know as we begin. Baptism gets its meaning and its importance from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Folks, it's all about Jesus. That's what we're we're talking about. His triumph over death in the resurrection guarantees for us new life and everlasting life. And that's where baptism's importance comes from. The meaning comes from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For our rescue, to bring us into the kingdom, the everlasting joy of the glorious presence of God. And I don't know how to impress that on you, but that note has to be struck first, okay? We're talking about Jesus Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection. Baptism is a religious ritual, but we're not talking about ritual. That's not what we're talking about here. Baptism, especially for Baptists, is a, is a church tradition, but we're not talking about church tradition here at all. I want us to, to realize we're talking about the magnificent work of Jesus Christ in providing for us our salvation. And so talking about baptism teaches us to express our faith in Jesus Christ and His great salvation. So, I don't want us to start with small thoughts, okay? I want us to think big thoughts. Can you think big thoughts for a minute? You know, great thoughts about great realities. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, was crucified on a Roman cross for your sins and for my sins. Folks, that's a great thought. And not just yours and mine, but but for the sins of billions throughout history and throughout eternity. And then on the third morning, he rose from the grave to prove to you and to the world and to us that there is everlasting life, that the resurrection to the life everlasting. Okay, so just nod your head and say, okay, Pastor, that's good. We'll start there. All right, we're thinking great thoughts, okay? Okay. Now let's talk about baptism just for a few minutes. Yeah, I, I kind of went through the, the main scriptures on baptism at, at the beginning and kind of talked to you about them. And the good news is, is I'm not gonna preach from all those this morning, okay? I just, I'm, I've chosen one and then another one to look at once in a while. But I want to read to you Colossians chapter 2, verse eight through 15. It's a tremendous passage dealing with baptism. Listen to what Paul says to this church at Colossae. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men and according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. I think what Paul said to them was, Let's don't think small thoughts, let's think big thoughts, okay? Let's think big things. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, And in Christ you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rulers and authority. And in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And now he explains that. He says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, of your heart, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. I want to talk to you this morning about baptism, what it means and and, and what it signifies. And, And basically I want to tell you three things about baptism, and then I have two more things I want to tell you about what baptism means. And so let's talk about it really quick. Number one, the first thing I want to tell you about baptism is that Jesus commanded it. It's not something we do because we want to, it's something we do because Jesus commanded us to baptize those who profess their faith in Jesus Christ. That's why the church has called it an ordinance. It's because it's been ordained by Jesus Christ. He ordained it in such a way that it would make it an ongoing practice for the church to baptize those who come to him in faith. The passage where he commanded it is in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And in that passage, the, the verb... The main verb is the verb that means to make disciples. So, so that's what he tells us to do. He told his church, he told the ones that were there on the morning of his ascension into heaven, he says, Make disciples of all the nations, of all the peoples, of all the world. Go and, and make disciples. And, and as you do that, and then he uses some participles baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teach them to observe the things that I have commanded you. And so he's he's given us, he's given the church an ordinance, a command to, to go without limits everywhere we go. We're to reach people for Jesus Christ and make them disciples and baptize them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And then teach them the things that Jesus taught. And then he told us how long we're to do that. In verse 20 he says this. And behold, here's how long you do that. As long as I am with you, even to the end of the age. And so we're to do it everywhere for all time. Okay so so that that's what it is it is talking about the baptism is a command of the Lord Jesus Christ and he ordained that we perform it and making disciples and baptizing them until Christ returns at the end of the age and so that's why we call baptism an ordinance okay there's some and and I don't want to get into this because it, to, to me, this begins to talk about little things, not big things. There are some who call it a sacrament. Okay? We don't call it a sacrament. We call it an ordinance because God ordained it, but it's not to save you, which is what sacrament means, that it has a, a saving power. We believe that it is a command of what has happened in our heart. So, so we're baptized at the command of Jesus Christ. And we're baptized, and this is the second thing, to express our union with Christ. In other words, we're being identified with Christ in our baptism. That's what Paul teaches when he talks to the Romans. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Aren't you glad that we don't have to die and be resurrected? in order to prove ourselves with Jesus Christ no we're, we're to be baptized and when we're baptized we're baptized into his death and so Paul says it this way we're buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life now Paul explains in Romans that this is all by faith. This happens because we trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And baptism signifies that faith and symbolizes that faith. And it's the faith that unites us to Christ. Baptism symbolizes that union. I think a good analogy would be when you stand at the altar and uh, you say to the person you're married, marrying with this ring, I thee wed, and you give them a ring to put on their finger. I have a ring on my finger, my wedding finger. That ring doesn't make me married. My wife assures me of that. When I take it off, I'm still married, okay? You, You know what I'm talking about. But why why do I wear it then? Well, it symbolizes to the world that that I'm with her, that that I'm married, that that I belong to her. And so that's what the ring uh, signifies in a wedding. It's the same with baptism. You're not saved because you're baptized. You're baptized Identify with Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. So Paul is saying, with this baptism, you are united to Christ. And the focus of that is that we're united to him in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's why he says in Romans, we're buried with him by baptism and risen to walk in a new life. And then the third thing that I would say, and that is... It's just basically, the meaning of baptism is to immerse, to put under the water. Uh, it happens by being immersed in water. The you know Paul's letter, Paul's words in Romans six three, were buried with him in baptism and risen to walk in a new life. You know, that just picture. Does that picture going under and coming and coming up out of the water? And and the word baptize itself, the word baptize is it's a Greek word, it's actually baptizo, and the meaning of the word is to put under, to dip, or to put under, to immerse. I'm told, now I don't know this for a fact, but I'm told that if you were to ask a person in the Greek in a Greek restaurant how they made French fries they would say, well, we baptize them in the grease. Okay? That means we dip them in the grease. We put them under the grease. That's what the the, the word means. Uh, And most scholars agree that this is the way the early church did baptism. Only much later did sprinkling or pouring as a a symbol of baptism occur. Back... uh, when uh, I had the oppor- I had the opportunity to go to Israel, and uh, one day we slipped over the border, border into Jordan, and we went into Jordan. And there's a there's a community there in Jordan called Petra. Any of you ever been to Petra or seen Petra? Any of you ever seen uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the number third, the third one? Hmm. Uh, that was filmed at Petra. As a matter of fact, the night that we spent the night there at the, at the town where Petra's located, the lady comes out, I mean, it was a real classy hotel. I mean, it was, it was really classy. It had rugs on the wall and, and had a little place where you sit around and you watched an old 25-inch television set and they had a VCR that they, she fed tapes into and that was the entertainment and she came out and said, Okay, we have all these tapes, but uh, so which one do we want to watch? And there were people there from, uh, well, the, there were the two of us from America, and then there were some from England, there were two from Japan, there were some from Africa, that, you know, there were people there from all over the world. And she says, Here's the movies that I have. And she brings out this stack of movies, and she says, uh, So which one do you want to watch? And everybody in unison said, we want to see, and, and I can't remember what, what the last one was called, um, but it was the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the, num- the third one. Um, and everybody voted for that. And she says, fine. This is, this is the 35th night in a row that we've watched this film. <laughs> because it's where it's shot and you see all the places that you'd seen that day in, in Petra. Uh, but anyway, while we were in there, I got way off track, sorry about that. We, we came in and there's a, a community there in Petra. It's, a, it's an old city that, uh, that's built out of the rocks. They built the caves and they have made them into, into homes and, and temples and all that kind of thing. And, and there was in the middle of the city there was an old uh, Christian community that dated to the sixth century. And we went and we, we toured their church that, uh, that, that they had. And there in the, in the middle of the church was their baptistry. Uh, and it was obviously one that they went down into and they baptized by immersion. I I have a picture of it, and I put it in a PowerPoint, and I thought I'd show it to you, and then I decided, no, I'd rather tell you all that story about the movie than that. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, If you want to see it, I I can show it to you, but I have to show it to you on here, and you wouldn't be able to see it. So it means to dip or immerse. In the early church, that's how they baptized. And then there are some other pointers to Immersion. The Ethiopian eunuch comes to faith in Christ and he says, look, there's water. What keeps me from being baptized? And Philip says, well, if you believe, you can. And so what did they do? They got up and they went down into the water. Why would they go down into the water except to baptize them by immersion? It makes more sense if that's what they were doing. In John 3.23, John was baptizing, and it says he was baptizing at Anion near Salem, because water was plentiful there. Why are we doing a baptism in my house? Because there isn't any water here, that's why. You know, we're, we're gonna go where there's, there's water. Um, and that's the only thing that you know, Dave and I thought, that's the only place we could think of unless we wanted to do it in the river. And right now we'd have to go build a dam to get enough water to, to, to do it in the, in the river. Uh, so John was baptizing because there was plentiful water there and you don't need plentiful water if you're not doing it by immersion you can have just a little bit of water and then there's two things I want you to understand about baptism and that's not just for the four that are that are going to be baptized today that's for every one of you who have been baptized these these two things and 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 these are great thoughts these are great things. Think about this in a, in, in a magnificent way. Number one, Paul says to the Colossians in verse 14 uh, that, that I read to you. Let me go back and read it again. In verse 14 he says, well, at the end of verse 13 he says, He has forgiven all our sins, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. You know, the, the, the picture that he gives and that, this I, I want you to see this. You've been forgiven of your sins. He says Jesus took the, the decree against you and he canceled it out. In other words, you've been charged. You're guilty. But Jesus canceled it. He just said, this is canceled. And and the picture that Paul paints here to the Colossians, they they would have seen it. They would have understood it. Uh, First of all, he said, you know, there's this certificate of debt against you. It's it's an IOU. It's a a signed confession. You have agreed that, that you are a sinner. And your accuser is there. You know what the word Satan means? It means the accuser. Satan is the accuser of the saints. And Satan is in this courtroom. It's a picture of, of a Roman courtroom, and the and the and Satan is there and he is accusing you, and he's saying to God, kind of like he said to God about Job, here are your so-called Christians. Look what they did. Look what their life was like. Look how rotten they are. He's a first class reprobate. He's guilty. And you say, he's right. Everything he said I did, I did. Every thought he said I had, I had. He's right. I am first class reprobate. And and Satan is, is prosecuting us. He's accusing us. But then our lawyer gets up. You say, lawyer? I don't see lawyer in there, no. It's not our lawyer. It's our advocate. And what is an advocate? He's a lawyer. He's one that takes your side. Our advocate gets up, and he walks over to that decree, and he says, here, let me see that certificate of death. Let me look at that certificate of death. And he looks at it. Maybe he looks back at us and says, this is you? And he says, well... Let me take care of that. And he pulls up his sleeve and there are the wounds in his hands. And he pricks them open again and he drops the blood all over the decree. And he holds it up and he says, I don't see any sins listed here. All I can see is my blood. You see, that's what Jesus did for you. That's why you're forgiven. His blood covers your sins. And they're no longer. And so he holds it up and he says, these are all blotted out. These are all words the Bible uses to talk about our sins. These sins are are blotted out. So where are the charges against my client now? And the Bible says, we're forgiven. The Old Testament says we are as separated as from our sins as the east is from the west. In Hebrews 13, the promise is that God will remember our sins no more. He just forgets them because they're canceled out. The Bible says we are forgiven. Jesus has canceled our sins. Praise the Lord. They're gone. Is that a great thought or what? You know, if your sins have never been forgiven, you need to accept Jesus Christ because it's a great thing to have your sins covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then the next verse, let me go back and read that one too. This is verse 15. This is the last one I read. After he nailed your debt to the cross, it says, he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made public display of them Having triumphed over them through Him, here's what He's saying. He's saying, we have been given victory. There's another picture. You know, Paul Paul wrote in pictures, and and he moves from the courtroom. He rem, he, he moves to the picture of the Roman general, and the and the people who lived in the first century were very, very familiar with Roman generals. They would conquer a country, they would conquer a people, and they would bring back the kings that they had defeated, and they would march them back, and they would march them in their in their processions, and they would go into the Roman cities, and they, and they built great ar- arches to show these people coming in to the, uh, in, in Rome, there, there's the Ark of Titus in Rome, and it shows a picture of the Roman armies coming back to Rome with the stuff that they had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem in seventy a d and you can see that relief there on on that heart, and you know that that they have that you know that they're professing their their victory over the peoples the armies that they have defeated and and somewhere Christians have gotten the idea that Satan. Is almost as powerful as God but let me tell you something he doesn't compare there is no comparison between the power of God and the power of Satan and Satan is a defeated enemy Jesus has won the victory and it's ours to claim it's yours to claim we claim victory in Jesus Christ and, and the way that that happens is we march with Jesus Christ And we claim our victory. When Satan had Jesus nailed to the cross, Jesus won. And he proved it three days later when he rose from the grave. And when he arose, death was defeated. So that's why it's a great thought. I'm saved. Are you saved? My past is forgiven it's forgotten it's blotted out my present is complete and abundant I live in 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 the abundance of life in Jesus Christ my future is secure because Jesus has already secured it Satan is already defeated well What then can defeat me, Paul says? Everybody know what the answer is? What can defeat me? Nothing. Nothing. The victory has won. And that's why...